Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Whitfield Report Thursday edition. I am your host, Sam Whitfield, recording here live uh, from NGC uh, Studios, or rather, uh, I'm not recording live, I'm recording in the uh, past, present, future hour. I'm actually recording this on uh, Tuesday night uh, before I leave for my vacation uh, to North Carolina. Uh, I made a video on the YouTube channel uh, kind of detailing that, that I was uh, leaving for North Carolina on Wednesday. So if you're hearing this on a Thursday, that's where I am right now. Uh, but I wanted to go ahead and pre-record this uh, short podcast uh, and it is going to be relatively short this week for the uh, audio podcast um, because I have two shows I have to pre-record. I have this one, the audio podcast, which I'm recording right now on uh, Tuesday evening. And then I have the hour-long uh, Saturday show, which I'm going to uh, pre-record and then premiere on YouTube right after I finish this one. and. That one is going to be more oriented towards some uh, pop culture stuff just in general. Uh, and like I said, said this is going to be a sh- shortened episode. I realized that the last week's uh, audio podcast episode was over an hour long, so it wasn't super um, lengthy, but this one you know, may only be a half an hour. But... Uh, Two weeks ago on the audio podcast, I discussed what my problems uh, with libertarianism in general are, um, kind of how the libertarian movement has kind of descended more or less from being small government to uh, completely anarchist in this newer generation and how that is not effective at all. Um, last week on the Thursday slash Friday slash, um, what ended up being the Saturday podcast, I talked a lot about what I define as, uh, you know, conservatarianism, uh, which is kind of a hybrid of conservative and libertarian principles. I defined what that ideology was and why I believe in that hybrid and why invite other people to join in on it with me too? Um, so this week, I want to focus on the culture war and why it's important for uh, conservatives and libertarians, uh, especially more, you know, I don't want to say anarchists, but more traditional libertarians to join in on the fight of the culture war, why it's important. Um, This is a subject that I've talked about regularly on my show for years and years and years. It was a staple of the Whitfield analysis, which is my old show, um, my really old show, which, you know, dated from 2008 all the way up to, you know, 2000, 
15, 2016, basically. And then when I relaunched the podcast, you know, I took a little bit of a break there. And then I relaunched the podcast as the Whitfield Report, um, you know, for the past two years. The culture war is something that has also been important. But the importance of the culture war has changed in some ways uh, for me. And in many ways, it's stayed the same. And I'll explain how it's changed and how it's stayed the same, but why it's important uh, for us to get involved culturally nonetheless. So I want to give you a perfect uh, example of just why it's important in general. And I I want to go back to uh, the example of Yalcon Memphis, which, um, as I mentioned before, was very enjoyable uh, to just, you know, hang out and be with some of my politica, my fellow politicos. Uh, even though, you know, I disagreed with, you know, a fair, you know, portion of the of the libertarian purists there, I, I still enjoyed it. Uh, I don't want people getting the impression that I didn't enjoy my time there because I did. Um, but one of the things I noticed at YaleCon, and it's something I've noticed with conservative conventions I've attended in the past too, such as the young... Uh, such as the Western Conservative Summit in Denver, uh, which I've you know attended in, in years past as well. When you get uh, people who are politically minded, it's awesome to get to get people who are politically minded, even if they're on uh, you know different sides of the aisle together, to talk policy and uh, you know just different ideas about economics and, you know, political philosophies, all of that is pretty good. You know, like I can get, I can get together with a, um, you know, group of friends who are conservative and, you know, talk about which, you know, Economic policies, I think, are good, or which, uh, you know, laws I think are good, or, you know, um, basically anything political when you get a group of people who are politically oriented together, it works well. However, and I actually, I'm not necessarily bashing anyone in particular for this because this is a habit that I uh, you know was into for a while and then I kind of snapped out of it um, talking politics and the you know importance of policies and whatnot is great when you're talking to um, your fellow political politicos because you can go really in depth with them and you're communicating on like a whole you know different level um and it's unique but the problem 
or I should say not so much a problem, but the simple fact of the matter is a lot of people in their day-to-day life don't focus on politics all that much. Um, Most people are just, they're either consumed with the culture uh, and, you know, stuff going on in sports and media and entertainment and their personal lives. Or they're consumed with just, you know, working or trying to put uh, food on the table or, you know, they're focused on something else. Generally, that isn't focused on politics. And even if, let's say, people do like watch the news, they're watching it tan, tan, uh, they're watching it tangentially, and they're probably not looking at like multiple news sources. Now. Rush Limbaugh coined the term low-information voters, which um, I have to say is actually a pretty appropriate term. People have criticized Rush to, to mean that, like, he's calling people stupid, which, you know, wasn't the case at all. When Rush came up with that term, you know, he what he was saying was that people, the general populace tends to make um, decisions based on, you know, relatively, you know, few facts or whatnot regarding politics because they're consumed with their own lives outside of politics. And so they don't pay attention. And they don't have as much information as the politically inclined. Right? And, I mean, there could be a whole, there's been a whole debate on whether, you know, it's it's good that people are, you know, not so politically obsessed in general or bad. Um, I will say this. I wish that more of the, uh, general populace were interested in, in politics, um, and I wish that people are more educated on uh, politics because I think if people actually understood what was going on uh, in general, especially with the left, they wouldn't be so, uh, you know. They wouldn't be so gung ho just to buy into the, uh, you know, Democrat left narrative. Um, they would maybe look at things more objectively, and then, you know, more likely if people were more educated in general on politics and, um, you know, whatnot, they would probably make more conservative or just more liberty oriented uh you know voting decisions in general and like i i know that there's you know a whole 
argument to be made that a lot of that is based on, you know, access to education and access to, um, you know, information and whatnot, which, by the way, the access to information part uh, is kind of an invalid point in this day and age. Uh, granted, not everyone owns a computer, but most people, the vast majority of people, while they might not own a full-blown computer, definitely own like a smartphone or a tablet these days. And so the access to information is there. Uh, we can decide on, you know, access to education and whatnot. But, you know, let's assume for a sec all things being equal you know, if people were just more educated on politics in general, they would um, probably make more liberty-oriented decisions. Uh, with that being said, politics is just not that interesting to most people, uh, you know, and a day-to-day, you know, situation, you know, compared to, like, music or, you know, pop culture or, you know, stuff like that. And, like, even I admit, like, you know, I'm, one, I'm, I'm like, one of those weird people that, you know, like, I'm into politics and talking politics. Um, you know, there are people out me like there, but I can certainly, you know... Like, I also like sports and entertainment. And, yeah, like, that stuff is a lot more fun to talk about, right? And, you know, like, music and film and whatnot, that stuff is more fun. Well, the left, very early on, knew that, uh, or I should say the American left, very early on, uh, knew that they needed to um, get into media and pop culture, right? After World War II, especially, um, there was a group called the uh, Frankfurt School uh, which was basically, you know, af- after World War II, they got disenfranchised with the idea of, um, you know, democracy. They, they started ad- adapting more uh, Marxist theory, and they, they decided to come to the United States. But they also knew that the United States and the people of uh, the United States would not uh, respond well to an attempted coup, uh, you know, similar to what happened in Russia, right? Uh, Communism in Russia was able to be, uh, you know, uh, installed through force. But in America, that wasn't going to work here. So... uh, in essence, and I'm actually going to play a clip from uh, Andrew Breitbart about this because he puts it so eloquently. But the American left, um, early on, 
decided that they they needed to, uh, you know, they figured out to infiltrate media and pop culture. And suddenly, um, you know, transmit messages through the media. And they, uh, well, conservatives were focused on uh, policy outright. The American left was focused on, you know, music and pop culture and entertainment. And it was, I would argue, like around the, the, the mid to late 60s when things really started to change. And we saw, you know, cultural norms, you know, in terms of entertainment shift uh, more left wing. Uh, you know, people were experimenting uh, more. People were, um, you know, getting sick of Vietnam. There was a lot more, uh, you know, drug use. Eastern philosophy was coming in uh, to American culture. So there was a cultural shift left. Uh, the right, for whatever reason, with maybe the exception of a few uh you know, actors and directors, although very few, and I realize I'm oversimplifying this, but the right and the, I, I guess the conservatives and the libertarians, uh, the Barry Goldwaters and the William F. Buckley's, they were focused on policy and, you know, economics and nerd stuff basically in in air quotes and um you know didn't see how pop culture was relevant but the left did and i mean the earliest ex- example i can think of and like now jfk would not even be considered left. He would actually be considered uh, conservative. So he's not a good example, but like, you know, necessarily of the modern left, but right, JFK and, uh, you know, Jackie and the Kennedy family, they were more or less, I would argue, at least in terms of contemporary America, the first, uh, you know, celebrity uh, presidential family, right? It was called uh, Camelot. The Kennedys were often very portrayed as, you know, glamorous, and uh, you know, everyone wanted to, everyone kind of wanted to uh, be like them. You know, lots of men wore their hair like, um, you know, Jack did. That was a style in the '60s. Um, you know, lots of women wore a lot of the same types of wardrobe styles that Jackie O uh, wore. And uh, in fact, my grandmother has a few, um, you know, dresses similar to that style. Granted, they look, you know, dated now, but the the, Kennedy, the Kennedys were very in, influential in terms of style. Um, you know, the Clintons, to in the 90s, like like Bill Clinton or not, and you know, let's 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 take away uh, you know 
the blue dress scandal and everything. Prior to that, you know, Bill Clinton gained massive cultural appeal because he could play the saxophone and, and he was a, a cool cat and he was a smooth talker and, you know, people wanted to hang out with him and, you know, drink drink beers. You know, some people would even joke that Bill Clinton was technically the first, uh, you know, black president, not necessarily as a racial thing, but just because, you know, we seemed down and, you know, hip and cool, like, you know, one of the brothers. Um, you know, I would even argue that, like, you know, Reagan had the appeal of, you know, being an actor. And, um, you know, Bush, I want to say that Bush's, that W. Bush's election was necessarily due to popularity. You know, a lot of people, we still don't know, you know, what exactly happened in 2000. That election will always remain a mystery, uh, probably forever. But I do remember, you know, before there was, before hating Bush uh, became cool during the not during the post nine eleven era, I do remember, you know, when I was a, a very young kid. But I do remember, you know, my my dad and some of the neighbors saying things like, "Well, you know, W. He might be a little country, but he seems to be like a cool president to drink beers with." Um, Obama, the Obama presidency was very, um, I mean, Obama's entire campaign was basically based on, you know, he's the cool, hip candidate. Not only is he the the first, you know, viable African-American president, but he, you know, he's cool, he's quaffed he's an eloquent speaker he uh he knows how to sing you know al green songs and you know motown and you know he can he can dance and there's just uh an uh you know an oozing of coolness and uh you know i was you know, a teenager went during Obama's election or, you know, that whole uh, presidential campaign of 2008. And I was one of those, you know, nerds even at an early age where I I liked looking at things like voting records and uh, whatnot. And, you know, now I'm getting into the origin of the show a little bit for those who, who don't know. But the entire reason why I started podcasting actually was because I remember looking at, uh, you know, and then junior Senator Obama's voting record, and I think it was, like, something out of, like, 1,500, you know, proposals, or something which isn't a lot in a congressional session, actually. He only voted on maybe 200, and then the rest were left 
blank and uh you know it didn't really seem like although his rhetoric was um you know impressive as far as what he was saying it seemed like his voting record and his policy you know positions in actuality were uh you know weren't that good or you know in in the case of his voting record were also uh, more or less non-existent so me being the political mind nerd that I um, you know am I brought that up to a couple of my classmates and I was like in eighth grade and I had never said anything about Obama being you know black but I, I all I had said was I don't know if this guy has the right you know, prerequisites based on his, um, you know, lack of political experience and political merits to be president. Um, that's all I said. What I realize now is that a lot of my friends at the time, and a lot of them are probably still like this, I was speaking a foreign language then when I was talking about policy and voting records and whatnot. All they heard was, I'm not sure if Obama was qualified to be president, and they automatically, you know, accused me of maybe having some racist tendencies or, you know, being possibly being discriminatory towards Obama. You know, because he had African American, even though I had said nothing of the of the sort. But you know, th- this this trend of kind of Obama was the guy, and anyone who questioned him was a racist. That was back in two thousand eight, and those were, were uh, I would argue, the seeds, the very early seeds of kind of the social justice uh, culture that we have now. It was nowhere near as bad now. But even so, you know, the fact that I merely questioned Obama's voting argument and I was a racist, that doesn't seem right. So I essentially at the time decided to, uh, you know, start a podcast, which would, or start an internet radio show at the time, which would eventually merge into a podcast, which would eventually merge into this podcast you're hearing right now, because I simply wanted to uh, educate my fellow millennials about, um, you know, comments and politics and whatnot and uh you know for a while it went pretty well but then like around my junior and senior then around like my you know the latter part of my sophomore into junior year i i realized i was uh being you know way too political uh in terms of like you know, terms and policies, and I wasn't really breaking down things well enough for, you know, my non political friends out there. I wasn't explaining myself very well, and that's because 
like most politicos, I hadn't really considered, you know, bringing pop culture into the whole thing. Uh, you know, movies, video games, and, uh, you know, like sports, those were all things that, of course, I liked as, you know, teenager. But, um, you know, I wasn't really aware that it was the culture that the left controlled and the culture was why, you know, Obama was the hip and cool president. Uh, well, uh, Andrew Breitbart, who had started Breitbart.com in 2011, back then it was, uh, big government, big, uh, big, you know, it was, it was, uh, big journalism, big government, uh, and big Hollywood. Um, I think that was one of them, but, um, I know big Hollywood for sure was one of them. And, uh, big Hollywood was the one I started following. And that was real when I started to realize how much, uh, you know, politics was downstream from culture as Andrew Breitbart was uh, so fondly famous for saying. So I'm actually going to now play for you an excerpt of uh, Andrew Breitbart talking about the importance of uh, politics being downstream from culture. So this is Andrew Breitbart and uh, on the subject, enjoy. And whatever happened to the founding fathers? I mean, in two and a half years of taking a, a degree that's American studies, a degree I chose because I went out to a bunch of sorority girls and said, I'm late for choosing my major. Will you choose my major for me? They said American studies. That's an aside. But in two and a half years of that, I remember upon graduating thinking to myself, who is Herbert Marcusa, Theodore Adorno, Antonio Gramsci, uh, this guy named Horkheimer, uh, Eric Fromm, I believe, all these crazy names. And that's not like Emerson or Thoreau or Emily Dickinson. Who are, what are these crazy names? And there are people out there on the internet who have conspiracy theories, right? I mean, Ron Paul has a, you know, it fits into that sort of paradigm, I would say, on certain things. They're all over the place, but I have one firm conspiracy theory, and that is that the communists did win, at least in the cultural institutions, and that Antonio Gramsci, who understood America, and Theodore Adorno, who understood America, they realized that most other countries were susceptible to a uh, Marxist-Leninist revolution, uh, but America wasn't, because we had this strong middle class, and everybody got off the boat and with a nickel in their pocket and felt that they could rise through uh, this society, this fluid. There, wasn't, there weren't firm class distinctions. And so those people that came here with the zeal, the communist zeal, at a time when communism hadn't been tried, tested, and failed, uh, found that America wasn't susceptible to it. And these guys came over here. They fled Nazi Germany. 
and they fled Mussolini's Italy and came here. And this is what I, I read this in the New York Times article, and I couldn't believe it. It talked about how Theodore Adorno, these are obscure names, but if you start Googling them and you start realizing these guys were the architects of our doom, and they're the people that we're, we're fighting right now. And Adorno was living right where I lived when my first son, Samson, was born in 1999. I lived at 27th in Arizona, and he lived up on 26th Street, Santa Monica, maybe about a quarter of a mile away. To describe the area, Santa Monica, palm trees, permanently 70 degrees, and he was there in the late 1940s and the 1950s. And in the New York Times, they described him say that he got there from Nazi Germany and he immediately became chronically depressed because everybody was so cheerful <laughs> and relentlessly cheerful and that they were so caught up in consumerism. It was like he was depressed that they weren't nihilists like he was, like you know, people, you know, like wanting to like radically transform society. People are like, radically transform society? Are you kidding me? Look at that Marilyn Monroe, she's fantastic. And these guys decided to socially engineer our culture. And what they realized was is that we weren't susceptible to the uh, arguments against capitalism because everybody was running around buying stuff and everybody was built it, you know, everybody accepted the premise of upward mobility. Everybody that was on the assembly line thought, I'm going to invent the widget that's going to make it so that we can have twice the production in an hour. So he was frustrated by that. And they figured out that the way to attack America was to not go after the culture, I mean, after the economics pillar of American society was to go after the cultural pillar of American society. Alrighty, so as you could probably tell by that uh, clip I just played of Breitbart, uh, that was from back in 2011 and uh, this was when smartphone and cell phone recordings were just starting to get good, but they uh, weren't quite as good as they are now. They're, they were nowhere near as good as they are now in 2019. Um, but nonetheless, Andrew did a uh, terrific job of explaining basically, you know, how and why the cultural Marxists took over Hollywood. Now, he goes on to, uh, you know, emphasize this more in his book, Righteous Indignation, uh, Excuse Me While I Save the World. That's, that's the title of his book. I'll probably link it here in the description for you guys to read. Or uh, you can get on Audible, one of those two. Um, it's very much worth the the read because he does explain why the culture war matters. Um, culture's how we got Obama 
for eight years. That's why, even though conservative and libertarian principles are better policy-wise, perhaps, they didn't mean much in, uh, you know, 2008, and they didn't mean much in 2012. Now, obviously, there were problems in 2012 because Mitt Romney was, you know, in hindsight, he was not that strong of a candidate. That's the other thing, though, with with culture. Well, um, you know, what Obama looked and was portrayed by the media, which is very left, you know, to be a, uh, you know, to be cool and suave and, you know, caring uh, guy. Both, well, well, more so Mitt Romney, but uh, John McCain to a certain extent too. John McCain, let's face, in 2008 wasn't going to win because he was seen as a war hawk, which he is. And people were afraid of, People were just, I think, sick and tired of kind of the war regime of the Bushes, which I can't really blame them uh, now in hindsight, but Obama wasn't that much better in hindsight uh, either, as it turns out, Um, in that regard at all, actually. But uh, in terms of Romney, you know, Mitt Romney was portrayed by the media, which was left as, you know, being the guy who tied his dog to the roof. I I remember that being a, you know, popular media meme kind of in in 2012. And also he had, you know, um, he had files with qualified women in in his company, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with qualified candidates who are female, but remember the media took that and turned that into Mitt Romney has a has a binder full of women, and you know the memes that you know resulted because of that. Basically, the left for a long period of time was successful because they had. Um, you know, television, they had the movies, they had music, they had, uh, you know, basically all mass media to really help influence popular culture. Um, and then the internet came around and they were pretty handy about using social media and whatnot too, and uh, blogging and when, when whatnot in its early days. Uh, and part of that was because of you know, the establishment GOP was just so terrible at it. In fact, you know, if, if one were to go back and, like, listen to my old, old shows, that was one of the things I would constantly bitch about on air was how conservatives just sucked at using the Internet, but how, you know, uh, Andrew Breitbart and, you know, Rush Limbaugh were one of the, only, were one of the few conservative voices at the time, who knew the relevancy and power of the internet? Uh, Andrew Breitbart, especially with you know what ended uh, with what ended up being Breitbart News during his um, you know tenure before his untimely death. Right. So 
for a long time, um, you know, the the right kind of cultural libertarians were really getting beaten down in terms of winning because of, of the culture war. And then things really changed with Donald Trump because, right, the thing that the Democrats using, you know, mass media and popularity to craft their candidates, right? It worked for Obama, but it also worked for Trump in kind of reverse, right? Now, if you're watching, if you're listening to this and say the year like 2030 or you know 2035, I don't know why you would be listening to this then in the future, but let's say you are. Hello, future listeners. Um, A lot of you who are younger might not, in fact, even in 2019, the, uh, a lot of kids who are probably under the age of like, you know, I would say 15, well, probably more like, eh, I'm going to say 13. Probably kids under the age of like 13, 14, at this point, they probably don't uh, remember that Don, or even, you know, know at this point that before becoming a political candidate, Donald Trump was a big, you know, he was a celebrity. He was a, a tabloid celebrity for much of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then you know, a lot of people know him because of the the Apprentice. So Trump had star power, and he had star appeal. He also used to be a former Democrat, and right, this was one of the interesting things because one of the criticisms of Obama, and I was one of these people, was that he wasn't qualified politically to run for office at the time because he had very little experience, right? But they used, oh, we need someone with, you know, fresh experience who doesn't have much. We need an outsider. And that was Obama to them, supposedly, right? Supposedly he was the outsider. I'm not sure how much in reality he actually was an outsider, but that was what they were saying, right? So the... The GOP, I, I realized that the GOP was very divided amongst Trump, but, uh, and I wasn't the biggest fan of Trump really until like it came down between him and Ted Cruz. And then I just knew that, um, you know, that Trump was going to be the one. But from the beginning of Trump's presidential run, I, I was talking to, uh, you know, one of, it's actually not just one of, but several early Trump supporters. And there were two things that they brought up consistently, right? One in regards to, you know, what do you like about Trump? You know, that they, they often brought up the fact that he was a, that he was a businessman and he was an entrepreneur. And that was, um, you know, he was a pop culture figure, and all of those things would have made him perfect to run for president, right? 
And, um, you know, then the second thing was, well, he literally has no experience unlike, you know, Obama. And they would always say, you know, in response that Obama had, you know, next to no politically, political experience and he got into office. And, uh, you know, Obama never even had like business experience or experience in private industry at all or being an entrepreneur. So their whole thing is the, was the no, you know, the no political experience rule wasn't going to fly, right? Also, Trump was, you know, he was bold, he was controversial, he was basically, I mean, he was both metaphorically and you know, he was both figuratively, metaphorically, and literally a WWE star at one point, right? And political correctness was getting really bad around, during the Obama years, especially after, uh, you know, the 2012 election with the whole uh, Trayvon Martin thing, which my friend uh, Ray from Eye on the Empire brought up, uh, earlier this week, actually, on one of his his podcasts, right? And who controls the media? It's a very fascinating episode, and by the way, I don't want to digress too much, but again, if you're not subscribed to Eye on the Empire already, go check out Ray's podcast. It's great. Uh, It's it's actually called Eye on 2020, but uh, anyway, I digress. Basically, after Trayvon Martin and that whole thing, the the social justice warriors and the Occupy Wall Street movement and everything just really got out of hand. And so Trump's appeal was he was a bit uh, he's a businessman, he's an alpha male, he's a billionaire. You know, he had a he had a brand, he had power. He wasn't a. He wasn't just a political nerd like uh, you know Jeb exclamation point, uh, you know, or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Well, I mean, the whole thing with Jeb was Jeb was unlikable because he was a Bush, and let's be honest. But um, you know, Trump was also seen as an outsider in 2016, where Obama was seen as an outsider, you know, Obama was seen as an outsider in 2008, Trump was seen as an outsider in 2016, right, eight years later. In a way, the MAGA movement and the conservatives hijacked, very successfully, I might add, the the left's uh, playbook for cultural relevance uh, reworked a bit and you know like Trump babes right bikini clad you know patriotic models you know on Instagram you know showing support for Trump I, I had one of them on my show uh, post election right like like that type of thing or not, it was effective, right? 
conservatives were no longer seen as prudes. Uh, you know, meme magic and whatnot um, was, you know, a thing that was useful. Now, true, the left was, like, trying to say that, like, all the memes were, that, like, all the memes were, were racist and whatnot, like, you know, Pepe the Frog and whatnot, which, while there were some racist depictions that were on the internet, like, blatantly racist, you really had to dig far to find them. But yet the left was, you know, pretending like they were out there all the time. Part of the reason for that, too, was, you know, Trump was winning bigly because of memes, because of, uh, you know, pop culture. And, I mean, I know win bigly is one of his phrases. But he he won because he was a pop culture icon, partially. And because Hillary Clinton was so um, hated, right? I was one of the people who said in 2015 that I would vote for whoever the candidate was uh, in the Republican Party because if we didn't, we would lose to Hillary Clinton. And, and I knew that Hillary Clinton was going to hijack the uh, the DNC from the beginning and, you know, like, just crown herself as the uh, nominee. I knew that was going to happen. And believe it or not, I think Trump was the only one who could have you know, successfully beaten her because Trump outcooled Hillary Clinton. Now, uh, while Trump hasn't been a perfect president, he's been better, uh, as I explained somewhat last week, uh, than a lot of people initially thought, right? So Trump's presidency is essentially an example of, you know, the culture war kind of turning in our, in our favor, right? For those of us who are conservative. And, I mean, I know there are people, you know, moral veterans here who don't like Trump, but, right, the culture war shifted to our side a little bit more with Trump's election, like him or not, right? Well, now the left is fighting back. They're trying to, uh, you know, censor us through Facebook, uh, you know, through YouTube, uh, you know, trying to say that, like, they're being Facebook and Twitter and, you know, YouTube and all the big social media platforms are all being very vague with what they're calling, uh, air quotes, hate speech policy, right? And granted, some of the censorship happens with the left, um, you, but it happens a lot more with conservative and libertarian, you know, uh, circles, right? The left invented the phrase alt-right, too, or rather Richard Spencer, you know, fully coined the term alt-right, and, uh, you know, like, the left took a very, like, fringe radical group and blew them, which was the alt-right, and blew them up to try and represent every conservative, right? That's why Richard Spencer, you know, is out there, and that's why Owen Benjamin, uh, you know, is out there. Like, the left 
does try and, you know, make like these alt-right figures, you know, try and make, the left loves to try and make like these fringe radicals look like the rest of us, and that's simply not true. So, I mean, the culture war is heating back up, but it's it's imperative that we, uh, you know, keep fighting the culture war here, uh, you know, in the conservative libertarian movement, because like or not, pop culture is, you know, it's important. So, you know, how do we do that? Well, you know, I'm, I've started a podcast, Ray has started a podcast just by having conversations, whether it be about politics and, you know, even sometimes just having like casual conversations on your podcast with guests about like movies and whatnot. That's a good way. But also, we need like more creative people. We need people who are writing fiction, uh, you know, books and novels. We need people, we need libertarian, you know, uh, gamers and game creators. And we need, you know, liberty oriented people who are interested in screenwriting and whatnot, which I happen to be. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, produce anything major, but. We need more creative people in the liberty movement because that's going to be important going forward uh, for the culture war. You bet your butt it's going to be. Um, so anyway, I realize I've been a little rambly this episode. Like I said, uh, I'm trying to do two episodes this night, tonight uh, for the week while I'm on vacation just because I love you guys uh, so much, and I really do appreciate uh, everyone who uh, listens to the podcast here on, uh, you know, the audio feed, whether that be through Apple Podcasts, through Google Podcasts, you know, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. I really appreciate you guys. Um, I also really appreciate, uh, you know, the people who watch the YouTube you know, live streams and subscribe to the Whitfield Report channel on YouTube and, you know, watch the live stream podcasts there, which are also uh, available on, you know, the audio uh, feed as well. Um, you know, and I, I doubly love people who are subscribed uh, to both mediums who enjoy both the audio podcast and the YouTube channel and the video content as well. You guys are the ultra savages in Sam's Savages, and I really appreciate you guys. So I wanted to, uh, you know, treat you guys to some special episodes while I'm gone this week. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm sorry I, I can't do these live. Maybe I'll try and do like some streaming and some recording from North Carolina if, you know, the signal and if my, if I get good Wi-Fi in the Airbnb, I will try to pro to provide some sort of content while I'm on the road and while I'm on vacation, but I can't promise you anything, so these shows are my gift to you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for, uh, you know, listening to the podcast. If you uh, feel like supporting us, please feel free to uh, go to paypal.me forward slash Whitfield Pod. Uh, 
You can donate on streamlabs.com forward slash the Whitfield report for uh, one-time donations. Or if you want to contribute to the show monthly, you can go to uh, anchor.fm forward slash uh, Whitfield report and uh, subscribe for uh, $1.99 a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month uh, if you choose to support it. I will have the uh, I will have the Patreon page back up and running here. I know I say that like every month. Uh, once I get back from vacation, I really am going to uh, dive deep and get that all configured again for you guys. But um, like I said, folks, in the meantime, I'm just so thankful for everyone who supports the podcast and thankful to our sponsors for making the show. Uh, you know, for supporting us as well. And, uh, folks, I just want to thank you very much for listening, uh, wherever you are in the past, present, future hour. Uh, God bless. God save this great nation. God freedom legacy in that order. And I will, uh, see you guys, uh, when I come back from, uh, vacation. Uh, if, if you're, uh, listening, and uh, if you feel like, you know, again, I will, I'll have a uh, live, I'll have a uh, pre-recorded show for the YouTube audience on Saturday night, night uh, which will also be available on Sunday night. So, you know, this is one of two shows this week. I hope you enjoy them both. I've worked hard on both of them. So, uh, you know, like, like I said, good night, uh, or I should say. Good day or good night, wherever you are in the past, present, future hour. God bless and God freedom like to see in that order. I'll see you uh, live when I get back. Bye for now and God bless.